tangled, tangled twists and turns. and turns. No straight lines. that that is beautiful I I think that is so beautiful it's it's just so well done it starts off with the chaos and the mess and all that stuff you're not sure what's going on and you zoom out and it's Mary uh, it's baby Jesus inside and and he's Emmanuel he's God who's with us in the mess how many are glad that God's with you in the mess (laughs) frankly if God wasn't with me in the mess, he wouldn't be with me. Because <laughs> it's messy. <laughs> but act like my, I mean, you're really different. Uh, no, life gets messy. And uh, uh, it's just beautiful that God is right there in the mess, in the chaos, in the pain, and all of that. Um, and I want to encourage you to not only be here next week to hear Shane uh, Claiborne, but to, to, to bring a friend. Um, and, and by the way, uh, when uh, you said that uh, he'll kick you in the uh, pants, um, she didn't mean that literally. He is a pacifist, so, so don't, don't, you know, he's, he's, but uh, Shane's a good friend of mine. Uh, have uh, spent some time with, in fact, we were together in this uh, movie playing homeless people that has not yet seen the light of day after six years. So <laughs> I'm thinking it's probably not going to happen, uh, but uh, man, could have been a contender, uh, Oscar. But uh, uh, we had, I went and stayed with him for a couple days, um, couple of weeks ago, or a couple weeks ago, a couple of years ago, and uh, uh, it, it, it's just, it's a cool thing. He, he's got this house, it's open to the whole community, and so no matter what you're doing, anyone can walk in at any time for any reason, and, and uh, uh, they get your attention, and yeah, this, it's kind of chaotic. It's like a hotel of sorts, but if you have ADD, it kind of drives you crazy because you're trying to make a point, and all, there's all this stuff going on, but it's beautiful. Uh, it's it's uh, his simple way. It's got some really good things to say. So come out and be a part of that. We're starting a new series here today since we're heading into the Christmas season. I hope you're all feeling it. Are you, are you feeling the Christmas spirit here these days? Uh, it's... Uh, yeah, I, I, I always watch Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol, and that gets me in the mood instantly. So I, I watched it this weekend. I'm good to go. Um, yeah, so the series is called When, when God Shows Up, because that is what happens in that first Christmas. And uh, uh, today I want to talk about who shows up. Who is this God who shows up? And I'll just give you this little preview, and it's not the God that anyone expected. In fact, one of the goals, not only of this message, but of this series, is to help us um, wake up to the messiness of the Christmas story. I, I, what happens is we get, we hear the story so much, it gets, we, we get over from, from familiar with it. Um, and whenever you get over, overly familiar with something, uh, it loses its power. Um, it, you just stop seeing the beauty of it. And that can happen with a Bible story, but it can also happen with your spouse. 
Huh? Amen? Uh, if, you, if, if we start taking things for granted, and we, we don't notice the amazing, unexpected, surprising, chaotic dimensions of the story. Uh, we, we, we stop noticing just how radically unexpected and how beautiful the God who, who shows up, how he really is. Uh, the story loses its edginess. It gets, it gets tame. It gets tidy. It gets sanitized. It becomes a cute, quaint little story about a little baby who came to teach us how to be nice to one another. And that's kind of the role it plays, I think, in the broader culture. But it must not play that role for us. Amen? Uh, we, 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 we always have to be having fresh eyes as we come to this. And so uh, the goal of this series is to kind of wake up to those dimensions of this story and to develop a new appreciation uh, for just how radical the God is who is part of this story. So I, I want to start this way. I, I want to start by showing a, uh, a clip from an old classic. Now it's not an old Christmas classic uh, like Miracle on 34th Street or It's a Wonderful Life or my favorite, Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol. Um, but it is an old classic nonetheless. Some of you, I'm sure, have seen this movie. And the minute you see the scene, you're going to be worried about what's going to happen in, in, in about a minute uh, if you have kids with you. But don't worry, we have sanitized this clip. Uh, so it's okay for all audience. And so let's watch Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Copyright restrictions. We trim some content from this sermon. Please visit our website, whchurch.org, where we'll try to post a link to the material that we use. Uh, Harrison Ford's a sloppy drinker, you know. <laughs> I love that uh, line. He chose poorly. It's like, really? Uh, thanks for the information, because we wouldn't have gotten that otherwise. You know, it's, it's, it's very helpful there, very helpful there. Uh, and clearly the cup didn't work because last I saw Harrison Ford was a whole lot older than that. So he's not the fountain of youth. But uh, see, as, as corny as this clip is and that movie is, um, it touches on a theme that I think runs throughout the whole Christmas uh, story and actually throughout the whole ministry of Jesus. The mistake that that one guy made was he assumed that Jesus was like all the other kinds of earthly kings. Uh, earthly kings have always used their... Power, power and wealth to, to benefit themselves and to drink the finest wine from the finest chalices that can be found in the land. So he finds the biggest and the shiniest and the brightest and the most gaudy of all the chalices and thinks, well, surely this is the one that would be worthy of a king of kings, the, ki the king of kings. Surely this must be, he's confident of it. But he chose poorly. Indiana Jones was a better theologian. Probably the little bit of thanks to the fact that the guy who just took it melted. Uh, but uh, he, 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 he got that Jesus is a king, but he's also remembered that Jesus was a carpenter, a lowly, humble carpenter who would never be drinking from a gaudy chalice like that. Um, he would have had a humble cup, and, and, and so he chose, he, he chose rightly. And the theme that it taps into with the Christmas story and, and throughout the whole ministry of Jesus is that Jesus is always doing the unexpected. He's, he's the greatest, but shows up in the least. The most magnificent, but he shows up in the degrading. He, he's, the, he's always turning expectations and uh, assumptions that people have about what it is to be a king, about what it is to be God, turns them right on their head. And it begins right with his birth. Uh, right with his Christmas story. Now, I, I, I want to read a passage from John. We don't usually go to John uh, to during the Christmas season because he doesn't have a Christmas narrative, but he does have a summary statement that I, I'd like to uh, uh, tap in on. And it's, I, I'll be reading from uh, the message paraphrase of the Bible. This is John 1, 1 and 2 and verse 14. The Word was first. The Word present to God 
God present to the Word. And the Word was God. The Word was God in readiness for God from day one. And then in verse 14, I love this passage, the Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. And that really does capture what, what John's getting at in the Greek. He moves into the neighborhood. Um, you have here the, the, the beginnings of what would come to be known as the doctrine of the Trinity. You have God with God. God with God. Um, and, and, and there's only one God, but there's this relationality within the, what's called the Godhead. And, and when John uses this idea of word, it's logos in Greek. And it, it has a connotation of God's spokenness, God's communication, God revealing God's self. And so Jesus is the word. Jesus is God, fully God himself, but God facing us, revealing himself toward to us. Whenever God has ever revealed himself, it's looked like Jesus, uh, because it is Jesus. Um, and what John is saying here then is that in order to reveal what God truly is like, God, the word, set aside all the prerogatives, all the privileges, all the blessings of his divine status, humbled himself, and moved into our neighborhood. And he didn't, didn't just move into our neighborhood in terms of a location. Uh, he, he moved into us. Uh, he took on our humanity. And he moved into our fallen situation. Moved into our, the mess we have made of our neighborhood. Moved into our problems. Moved into our pain. And then on Calvary, we learn when... The whole point of the incarnation is ultimately to drive to, to Calvary when Jesus is crucified. There God moves into our sin and into our shame, into our guilt, and ultimately into our God-forsaking curse that goes along with all sin. That's the consequence of all sin. And that's why Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's experiencing it all from the inside. And in doing all of that, in doing all of that, uh, he's revealing what God is like. That whole narrative is saying, this is what God is like. in God's very own being. He moves into our neighborhood. But we live in a rough neighborhood, you may have noticed if you watch the news at all. Um, it's, our rebellion against God has made this neighborhood, at least in large segments of this neighborhood, a hellhole. And God knows that when he moves into this neighborhood, he's going to die a horrific death. The people of this neighborhood are going to put him to death. And yet he does it. And why would God do a crazy thing like that when you had the bliss of eternity, the bliss of heaven, the perfect love and joy of the, the, the fellowship of the triune God? When you had all that, why would you leave it in order to move into this neighborhood where you know you're going to get yourself killed? And the answer is that Jesus is the Word, and the Word reveals exactly what God is like, and this is what God is like. And so the Word reveals this God who is, is, uh, puts the welfare of others before his own welfare. Um, no one has ever thought of God this way. This is an altogether unique, radical revelation of God. Uh, this is a God who was willing to go to any extreme in order to save us across any distance. And a God who's willing to make our humanity his humanity. In our neighborhood, his neighborhood. In our messes, his own messes. Out of love for us, he enters into solidarity with us and makes our sin his sin, our guilt his guilt. Our curse, his curse. And in all of that, he's revealing what God is really like. Breaking all the conceptions of God that people have ever had, he reveals the truth about God. A God who goes to this length in order to redeem us. And the craziest thing is that it's precisely in doing all that that God establishes that he's king of kings and lord of all lords. God demonstrates he's the king of the universe by moving into our neighborhood and getting himself killed. <laughs> Why? Because that's what his love does. That's who God is. 
He's a, he's a king, but he's unlike any kind of king that, that we have ever, ever dreamed of. Uh, he's a king, but he's an anti-king king. Because kings are supposed to. I mean, the kings are supposed to drink out of giant chalices, gold and opulent. That's what they do. The finest wine and the finest chalice. They use their power to their own benefit. That's what's king, what kings do. But this king drinks out of a carpenter's cup and uses all of his power. And he's got all the power, but he uses it for the sake of others at cost to himself. This is a one weird king we're talking about here. And kings are supposed to be born into royalty, right? But this king's born in an animal stable and to a bunch of peasant farmers. And kings are supposed to have this dignity to them, right? They're supposed to display their dignity. But this king is born to an unwed Jewish uh, teenager, which in the first century was scandalous. It would, it would change his reputation his entire life. And kings are, are supposed to be born, you know, or are supposed to live in fortified castles and be surrounded with all sorts of dignitaries and high and mighty people. But this king leaves his castle, comes down to this neighborhood, and surrounds himself with a bunch of nobodies. He doesn't hang around with the mucky to mucks. He hangs around with the, the invisible folks, the marginal people, the oppressed people, uh, the, the, the lame and the sick, and those who are most judged. Um, kings are supposed to, when they're born, they're supposed to be welcomed by, by, by famous people, celebrities, and all the dignitaries. But this king, when he comes into this world, he's welcomed by some lowly shepherds and some oddball astrologers from, from Persia. It, it, it's just, this isn't like any kind of king we've ever known or even conceived of before. And, and kings, they're supposed to rule with an iron hand and install fear in their subjects. That's how you get them to comply. But this weird king, this oddball king, he, he, he rules with his self-sacrificial love. He rules by giving himself away. He rules by pouring himself out into others in order to win the hearts of his subject. He doesn't want to iron hand anybody. He wants to win them by their, by, 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 win their love by his love. And this king, you know, kings usually secure their, their reign uh, by slaughtering their enemies. But this odd king, he establishes his reign by allowing himself to be slaughtered by his enemies out of love for his enemies, because that's what his enemies need him to do. And ultimately, we are all in the category of, of, of uh, enemies. Uh, this is not like a king that we've ever known before. Every turn, Jesus takes our expectations about what kings are supposed to be, and he turns it right on their head. And he reveals that his kingship is the opposite of the world's kind of kingship. Absolutely antithetical. He is the anti-king, king of kings, and lord of lords. And he's beautiful. Amen? Amen. Altogether beautiful. Altogether beautiful. And in doing all of that, he is the word. Which means in doing all of that, he is revealing what God is truly like. And so as he takes this idea of what it is to be a king and turns it on his head... He's also taking the idea of who God is and turning it on, on his head. Bursting our assumptions about, about the supreme being, the creator of heaven and earth. And at least in many, many respects. So I want to look at one aspect of this odd king word revelation of God. Uh, what, one very commonly held assumption that people have about God that I think Jesus completely turns on his head. Uh, in some ways, it maybe is the most radical way in which Jesus reverses our expectations about God. Uh, it has to do with God's holiness. What does it mean to say that God is holy? It, all Christians, of course, believe that God is holy. It's all over the place in the Bible. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. He's holy. The question is, what does that mean? And, and what kind of holiness do we ascribe to God? And we should, we should never just assume we know. Don't assume anything about God. We have to take all of our cues about what God is like from Jesus Christ. And so let's keep our eyes focused on him. Now, the word holy, the concept of holy in, in the Bible, it means to be set apart. To be set apart. To be st distinct from. 
or consecrated to. Okay, so it's in separate domain. And that's led many people throughout history and yet today to assume that God's holiness means that he's set apart from sin. And, and, and so a lot of us have been taught, in fact, a few of us in this auditorium and maybe a few of the people listening on podcasts have taught or at least have heard that God is too holy to even look upon sin. God is too holy to deal with any kind of sinful situations. It would taint God's character to get his hands dirty dealing with sinners. Uh, a lot of us have been taught that God is so holy and so offended by sin that, that whether your sin is great or small, many or one, if it's not taken care of, God will punish you for all eternity in hell. Never ending punishment. He's that opposed to sin that it would warrant that kind of punishment. In fact, God is so holy, many of us have been taught, that it kind of gets in the way of his love. Um, most believe that God would like to, or at least part of God would like to, love everybody and welcome everybody and save everybody, forgive everybody. But his holy justice requires that no sin goes unpunished. All sin must be paid for. His, his divine justice is such that he can't just forgive. Someone's got to pay. All sin, every single sin, has to be punished. And it can be punished in one of two ways. One way is to punish the sinners. And that means that they will spend eternity in hell, according to this widespread assumption here. But another way, and this is the way that Jesus took, Jesus steps into our place and says, don't punish them for all the sin of the world. Punish me for all the sin of the world. And, and, and so the Father's wrath is satisfied as it's vented on Jesus as he's dying on the cross. Um, now, it, I firmly, firmly believe that Jesus died in our place. He's our substitute. But I don't think that's the way it happened or went down. But if I were to discuss that, it would be a different sermon. So just chew on that at a later date. But that's the idea. And so the, the question is, 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 that, is that the kind of holiness that Jesus demonstrates throughout his life? Jesus is the revelation of God. Um, he reveals exactly what God's like. But is that the kind of... He's holy, perfectly holy. He's sinless. But is, is this the kind of sinlessness that he has? It seems to me that just like we project onto God our assumptions about what a king is like. And a lot of people have this idea of he's a king that rules with an iron hand and we have to live in fear. It's sad. So many people still live under that kind of conception. But in the same way, I think we take a human conception of holiness and we project it onto God. Because in our experience, the way we experience holy people, usually they have a kind of a, they define themselves as set apart from those people. Like the Pharisees. This conception of holiness as being separate from that, that, or those people, or those things, or those situations. That kind of holiness that doesn't want to get its hand dirty, hands dirty, that likes things to be tidy and neat and, and, and perfectly clean. That prudish kind of pharisaical holiness we find all over the place. And, and they, they define themselves as over and against. You see with the Pharisees all the time. We're not like those folks. We're above those folks. We have a separate space. We want to, don't have fellowship with them. We don't want to tarnish our reputation by being around them. We don't want to get our hands dirty by dealing with their dirty little problems. It's a prudish pharisaical kind of holiness. And when we project that out of God, we end up having a kind of a cosmic Pharisee. 
And that has enormous implications for how we relate to God, obviously. Jesus is the word who fully reveals God, but I submit to you that Jesus' holiness wasn't this kind of holiness. I mean, for crying out loud, um, Jesus moves into our neighborhood. Uh, our neighborhood is sinful and messy and violent and painful. That doesn't sound like something a cosmic Pharisee would do. He's born in an animal farm, and, 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 or an animal farm, an animal, animal barn. Although this is kind of an animal farm too. But uh, he's he born in an animal barn and to, 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 to an unwed uh, Jewish teenager. And that's going to taint his reputation his whole life. That doesn't sound like something that a cosmic Pharisee would do. And while the Pharisees are standing far clear of all the terrible sinners in, 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 in Jerusalem and Galilee, these are the people that Jesus mainly hangs out with. He fellowships with them. Uh, he goes to dinner parties with tax collectors and prostitutes. We read in the Gospel of Luke. This is not something that, it, this is not a set apart from sinners kind of holiness. It's not a prudish kind of holiness. It's not a fair sacred kind of holiness. It's something altogether different. Jesus is perfectly holy, but the way he's holy, I submit to you, is antithetical to the way that the Pharisees are holy. And now, get, get this statement. Uh, here's something what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. One of the most incredible, radical, unexpected verses in the Bible. For God, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, even though he never sinned. He who knew no sin. Now just hover on that for a second. The all-holy God made the all-holy Jesus to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Folks, um, it's a mystery as to how he became our sin, but there you have it in the text. Far from being set apart from sin, the word reveals God to be the kind of God, the kind of holy God, who enters into solidarity with our sin. Because of his love, he, he's willing to enter into solidarity with our sin and in some sense become our sin. Far from being set apart from sin, this God, this unusually unexpected, surprising, amazing, beautiful God, dives headfirst into our sin and then absorbs it within himself in order to free us from our sin. No cosmic Pharisee would ever dream of doing something like that. This is a, a God who is altogether different from that kind of holiness. Um, and so you ask, how can, a, how can a God who dives into sin and absorbs our sin, um, how does that relate to this prudish concept of holiness? And I'll save you the time. The answer is it doesn't. It blows that concept sky high. It blows it to smithereens. It annihilates it, destroys it, decimates it. In fact, the truth is that the kind of holiness that is revealed in Scripture that comes to us through the Word incarnate, that first began to come to us that first Christmas morning. The holiness of this God is, I submit to you, the exact opposite of the Prudish kind of holiness. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 shows us this. He's not set apart from, 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 uh, from, from sinners. He dives into it. And this is what makes God holy. You want a God who's set apart, who's distinct, who's unique, who's consecrated, who's one of a kind? This God is it. His holiness, his uniqueness, his otherness is found exactly in this. That he's not put off by sin. He doesn't run away from sinners. He runs towards sinners. He's not so holy that he can't look upon sinners. He's so holy, he embraces sinners and gets on the inside of their sin. He dives into their mess. This is a God who doesn't avoid messy situations. This is a God who seems to delight in messy situations because he wants to redeem people out of, his messy of those messy situations. Amen? This is a holy God. A totally unexpected. 
No one in the history of the world has ever conceived of God doing something like this. And that's one of the ways that you know it's true. It's divinely inspired. We've got a whole history of religions uh, to, to, to test this out. We, we, we know what it looks like when human beings make God in our own image. We, when we just imagine God on our own, we know what that looks like. It's a giant version of us. And if you're a Pharisee, it's a giant cosmic Pharisee. But no one in the history of the world has ever dreamed of something so insane as this. A holy God who dives into our sin. Praise God. Now, God hates sin. God hates sin. But it doesn't deter him even for a nanosecond from running towards the sinner. And in order to redeem the sinner and embrace the sinner. He makes our sin his own and makes our guilt his own. And that makes our God forsakenness his own so that we never need to be forgiven, uh, forsaken. And, and never need to be carrying our own shame. He redeems us and restores us out of his love. So the true holiness of God doesn't get in the way of his love. The true holiness of God expresses his love. <laughs> this is who he is. People sometimes do this just a positioning where they, they say, oh, yes, God is love, but he's also holy, and he has to have holy wrath on us. Like there's a competition in God. But folks, God is love, right? God is love. God is cross-like love, and, and, and his holiness, as well as his justice, as well as every other attribute you can apply to him, it just expresses that love. It, it's, it, it's like taking a diamond and looking at it from different angles and seeing it in different situations. It looks different in, in, in different situations, but it's always that same love, that undying love, that perfect love, that unwavering love, that stooping love, that love that will go any distance, cross any, overcome any barrier, endure any kind of pain that is necessary in order to be in solidarity with the people that he loves. <laughs> he is perfect love. He wants to invite us in on the joy of his own being, and he's willing to pay this price for it. Never has there been a God in the history of the religions that's, that had anything like this, resembled this in any respect. This, God's holiness is found in the fact that he's willing to become our sin. Somebody should tweet that. God's holiness is found precisely in the fact he's willing. Like I said, this is, this is not what you'd expect. This is altogether different. This sets God apart from every conception of God that humans have ever had. It's, it's holy because it's not common. It's altogether unique. It's one of a kind. If Jesus is an anti-king king, well, he's an anti-holy, holy God. He's the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords and the God of all gods, and he is holy. He is holy. He is holy. But in the beautiful sense of the term, not in the prudish sense, not in the pharisaical sense, in the Jesus sense. In the Jesus sense. Praise God. I have often said here that, that until we can begin to experience the love of God in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our mess, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our guilt, this is called our cesspool. Until we can experience God as we are inside the cesspool, whatever that cesspool may look like in the past and present, until that happens, we're never going to get out of that cesspool in a healthy way. You know, you may trade it out, and your own willpower, you know, can, can, may, may dress it up and may cover it up, and you may forget about it and pretend like you don't have it. That's how we usually deal with this stuff. But if we're going to be transformed in the image of this word, it has to happen by us being just exactly who we are in all of the mess and imperfections and pain of our life and letting God love us right there. It's, it, it, it's as we behold the glory of God shining on us in our darkness. That is what wins our heart. That's what transforms our character. It transforms our wants and our desires. It changes us from the inside out. This isn't the God who rules with his iron fist, you change or else smash. This is a God who rules with self-sacrificial love. 
It's the word who enters into our neighborhood and then enters into our heart and every nook and cranny, if we'll let him, if we'll let him. And he transforms us in that way. Everything depends on this. It's, you know, I shared two weeks ago about this thing I've been going through lately. A lot of us, the stuff we've been through, either the stuff we've done, it's caused shame, or the stuff that was done to us that's caused pain. It can be so severe that we just bury it. And we, we can bury it deep. And so, for some of us, the healing here, in fact, I think for all of us to some degree, let's be honest, but it comes in layers. It's not like all of a sudden, it's like peeling the onion. It comes in layers. And just when you think that you've now gotten out of the cesspool, it turns out, ah, oh, there's another dimension to it. And that's okay. You know, it's all a process. Let's not be in a hurry. We're going to, we got eternity here. So, so it, 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 it's going to happen. But, it, but we, our, our job is to let God in as, as far as we know. And, and uh, I shared how I, you know, I, I saw, I go through these thin places every five years on average, but it can go two years back to back and then 15 years without anything. But uh, for whatever reasons, and I never know the reasons, but I've been in a place where the gap between heaven and earth is very thin. And in those periods, you see more clearly and you feel more deeply and you're more awake and you, you just sense God's presence more profoundly. And things come to you about yourself or about God that you maybe didn't see very clearly before. From, in my case, what I saw was a dimension of my past, which I now think is, I hope it is, the most painful dimension that I went through, but I'm, I'm no longer predicting that anymore. Who knows? But the most painful dimension of it all was that I never saw this abuse coming. I, 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 I think because I had ADHD, I never connected the pain I was feeling and pain that was being inflicted on me with the behavior that I did. And often there wasn't a connection because it was just kids having fun whacking me on the head with the Bible because the nuns said they could. Um, but I came to the conclusion at the age of six that I live in a scary, capricious, arbitrary, I didn't use those terms when I was six, of course, but, but I'm describing them now. But it, it's a world where, where pain can just jump on you at any second and you're all alone. And, and that explained to me why my, the walls around my heart at the age of six had to be so thick. Um, to get through this, I've got to be a rock. To get through this, you, I've got to be invincible. You've got, got to become an island. You've got to become impervious. You've got to be Superboy. A Superboy who doesn't feel any pain. And I was. I, I, it worked amazingly well. Uh, but that's not a stopping point. That's a very un it's a necessary thing, but it's not a healthy thing. And so I shared how I w invited God in on this, or rather God just invaded this. And, and, and it's all, these, these things are always contained in memories. And so I, the Lord w had gave him the memory of, of the time I made this covenant, lighting matches in my backyard in defiance. And mom doesn't like me, so I'm not going to like her and she'll never hurt me again. But Jesus comes into this and just, re he doesn't change the past, but he changes the meaning of the past. And as he loves you in the midst of this false message, loves you in the midst of your rebellion, and loves you in the midst of all of the pain you're in, and that's what begins to bring healing to this. And I've shared how uh, God has been to me since the early 20s. God shows up there in the form of a, a beautiful, radiant, caring, loving mother. And, I, and this was my therapy. I called it public therapy two weeks ago. But I let everyone on a little secret that in my relationship with God, God's motherhood has always played a very, very important role. Um, and I, you know, I'll tell you this. I have been just overwhelmed 
with the emails, I, I've, I've been deluged. I, I'm still climbing out from the pile. Of people with testimonies about how this has just reframed their relationship with God and it brought a dimension of passion to the relationship with God that they didn't have before. And many are saying, talking about the, uh, healing, uh, the kind of healing they, haven't, they hadn't had before. And see, this is beautiful because God really, God is not more male than female or more female than male. Men and women are equally in the image of God, yes? <laughs> equally. And I, I, I think it's just healthy to want all of God. Not just the mask, the, those attributes that we identify as masculine, but the, the traits that we identify as feminine, because that is as much part of God as, as anything else. And I know the Bible's written in a patriarchal culture where you can only get so far with some of that stuff, but, but here we're, we're in a position where we should want all of God. And for some folks, that feminine side of God can just bring a healing that if you're imaging God only exclusively in male terms, it just isn't going to happen. And so I encourage you to just let the Spirit do, just take that and open your imagination to the Spirit and, and see where that goes. But however, God's infinitely more beautiful than any of us ever conceived. So just keep on going with it. Then get more and more and more and more and more and more and more, more beautiful. Beautiful masculine, beautiful feminine, beautiful friend, beautiful brother, whatever it is that is needed, God is that to us. Now my point of saying all that is this. None of that would have happened if I had had a prudish, pharisaical conception of God. If God, was a cosmic, if God was a cosmic Pharisee, and so many people see God in these terms, they wouldn't ever say that, of course, but you live in fear, and you live in shame, because all of us know that we're not worthy of that God. All of us know that, that we're sinners. Um, and, 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 and so with me, there's all the mess and stuff that I had in my life and, and still have in my life and all the implications that that has in my behavior and, 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 and things like that. Why would a God want to deal with the likes of me? A cosmic Pharisee, no, you're going to get your hands dirty, messed up with this bag of painful juggernauts. I don't know what that word even means. I, <laughs> this guy who can't even speak and he's a public speaker, what the heck? No, really, it, it's, it, in fact, if I had had a, 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 a cosmic Pharisee conception of God, it would have reinforced all the hiding. I'd still be in that fortress. I wouldn't dare to invite th that God in on this, because this God wouldn't want to deal with this. And so you try to hide it, try to shame it, try to pretend it's not there, try to forget it. Everything's fine, because you want to impress, you've got to impress the cosmic God. The, 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 the cosmic Pharisee God says, first clean up your act, and then maybe I'll take a look at you. And no, then don't look at me. Uh, don't look at me. Uh, look at this. And then we put forth a facade. That's not the real us. But thank God. Thank God. We don't serve a cosmic Pharisee. We serve an adorable mother, adorable heavenly father, a brilliant friend, a savior, a lover, who is willing to dive into the mess. In fact, here's the thing. Whatever is on the inside, whatever it is, God's already united himself with it on Calvary. He entered in solidarity with, with, with every sin in the world on Calvary. So there's not, if you're hiding something, you can stop because he's already there. He doesn't just know about it. He's in it. He's in solidarity with it. That's the beauty of this. The ugliest part of you, the worst part of you, the part that you hide from everybody else. God not only knows about it, God's already in it. But it will be to your benefit, my benefit, to acknowledge that and invite him in. And see, here's the thing. The God who was willing to move into our neighborhood, our messy, smelly, dirty, violent, sometimes nightmarish neighborhood, well, that God is safe to invite into your neighborhood, the neighborhood of your heart, the neighborhood of your secrets, the neighborhood of your 
painful memories, the neighborhood of the abuse, the neighborhood of the terrible thing that you did, uh, and terrible things that you've done. He's safe to invite into every nook and cranny, every dark spot, every dark place, every secret closet, every hiding cell. Invite him into the whole thing. And even the stuff that you don't know is there. Because there's probably stuff there that you don't know is there. And so what, what needs to happen is, on a regular basis, I think I, I have the persuasion that this is like the most fundamental act of Christian discipleship right here. Okay, so listen up. Whatever else you do in terms of discipleship, this has got to be part of it. And that is where we have a time we set aside where we just are going to be who we are. No better, no worse, but just who we are. Warts and all, faults and all, imperfections and all, shame and all. Whatever's real, be that. And ask God, the Holy Spirit, to search your heart and reveal whatever else you don't know. That's why the psalmist prays, search my heart, O God. Search me. Find out all those unclean ways. Now, if you're serving a cosmic Pharisee, that's too scary. You don't want him to be investigating your heart. But if, if you're serving the God who revealed himself, began to reveal himself on that first Christmas morning, this is a God who so desires to move in your neighbor because he's already there. And he just wants to bring... You'll only begin to be healed. See, it's as we experience God loving us exactly as we are, warts and all, that is what begins to transform us into what God knows we can become, which is ultimately in the image of his own son, Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. And the cosmic Pharisee, if he gives any love at all, he gives it at the end, after you do the work. This God gives it all up front. And that's what fuels the transformation. And so have regular times. Maybe you've had a really clean life and there's not much ugliness there. Wonderful, wonderful. Still, I'm sure there's something. There's some things and it, it will be good for you. to. It proves to you that God loves you, not your good behavior. God loves you. And, and your sin, in fact, all the sin of the world is no deterrent to that love. It doesn't affect his love a bit. It does, his love doesn't go up and down based on how few warts you have or how few terrible sins you've committed or what kind of stuff you've been through. His love is unwavering and he proves it to us in the most beautiful way if we just bring to him who we really are with all of the painful memories perhaps, with all the secrets, bring it to him. And dare as you're, as, it's about standing naked. Just stand naked and, and say, here I am, here I am. But then look deeply into her eyes and see God's love for you right as you are. And that begins to change everything. And if you, you have stuff there that you know that you shouldn't have, you know, you, you, you know that that cocaine habit of yours really shouldn't, you know, be there or whatever it is, but you don't want to let it go. Well, then be that. God, I don't want to let this go. But see, if you'll just be that and let God continue to love you, I can tell you something. He begins to change what you want. He begins to change what you desire. You maybe can't conceive it right now. <laughs> you can't imagine life without this thing. This is your pet idol. This is what gets you by. This is mommy's little helper, whatever it is. But, but you can't conceive of it. But man, if you let God love you in the midst of it, it begins to change that. You get a different conception of yourself. Possibilities open up that you never dreamed of. And you start seeing things that you want even more than this. <laughs> and this is getting in the way of that. So you let go of this. That's how the change happens. Amen? It doesn't come at us like some kind of threat. Like you better... No! 
No, it's I love you and as you are right now. And that's what begins to change everything. He changes us from the inside out. He moves into the neighborhood to clean up the neighborhood, to redeem the neighborhood, to raise all the real estate up to heaven, praise God, and turn it into a beautiful castle. You're living in a, a, a hut right now, muddy, dirty, poopy hut, but God wants to turn that into a beautiful castle that he will if you just let him move in. Let him move in. You got nothing to lose because he's already there. <laughs> He's closer to you than you are to yourself precisely in those dark spots, praise God. Carve out space to be naked before God and just let him, let her love you as you are to change you what he knows, she knows you can become. Hallelujah. Okay, I'm going to end this kind of weird. Left turn. And now for something completely different because, he, uh, he, he, yeah, this is the strangest way of ending you can imagine, but it fits. Because see, as we're being transformed... Now, this doesn't wait until you are fully transformed because we're all in process. But as we're in the process of being transformed, God then, he shows up, she shows up in our life, transforms us, and then begins to use us to show up to others. So I'm going to just end by talking a little bit about what does it look like when we show up? And what it looks like is this. And each of you are going to pick up, I'm not talking to you pod listeners right now, but you can ask for one and we'll probably send you one. Um, or you can get it on, on our website, I think. But uh, why do I always say stuff I know nothing about? I don't know if that's true or not. <laughs> it ought to be true. But I really want you to pick up one of these on the way out. So every Christmas, we, <laughs> every Christmas, uh, <laughs> I'm a specialist on talking about things I don't know about. Heck, last service, I went off in about four minutes talking about this. Where, where, do I still have? Yeah. My doggy bag. So I pick up my dog's poop with this when I go out for walks. And now you have that image in your, face, in, in your head. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, so there's my do doggy poop bag. Here's the thing. So every Christmas, focus. Well, you guys all got ADD or something? They always say the congregation takes on the, you know, the kind of the personality of the pastor. It isn't that unfortunate. <laughs> it's... So, so every Christmas we encourage people to celebrate Jesus' birthday in a Jesus kind of way. Kind of a cool idea, don't you think? And, and whatever else that might look like, it has to look like this. Uh, this is the God who the Word reveals him to be other-oriented love. Uh, that hospitable God that we talked about several weeks ago. A God who most people live their life in a closed community of their family and friends. And strangers are off, uh, not on their radar screen, but they must be on our radar screen because we were on God's radar screen when we were strangers. And, and, and so whatever else it looks like, selling, sell, celebrating Jesus' birthday in a Jesus kind of way, it, it, we shouldn't be spending all of our Christmas budget on ourselves and our family and friends. We want to carve out some for others. Uh, to further the kingdom in other places with other things. And so um, we just encourage people to pray about this. All, all resources are, are from God. They belong to God. And so we just have to ask. We shouldn't just ask this around Christmas time. We should live in this one. But how much of this do you want to, me to spend on myself and my family? And how much am I supposed to invest in the kingdom and give to others? So, so this uh, uh, campaign we're calling When We Show Up. And, and we're going to raise, we are going to raise at least $50,000. We might do twice that much. But... For three things, and listen to these three things, and, and I'm just going to give you the bare outline here, but this is beautiful. Number one, uh, we want to raise uh, money to help uh, chronically homeless people, and we'll do this in two ways. There's a ministry called Walking with a Purpose, and these are folks who just go out and befriend home people who are chronically homeless. They befriend them, find out what their needs are, and then find ways of meeting those needs. Um, and we're so honored to have this happen here, but they want to make Woodland Hills their base, uh, and and and. 
So we want to raise $5,000 to create a space to store all their stuff and all the stuff that they need. And we want to partner with them and go with them and, 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 and doing this kind of thing. And then, okay, get this one. I got four minutes. Oh, too bad. Okay, the U of M. The U of M has a center where they study homelessness and solutions to homelessness. And they have found that um, getting homeless people into tiny homes, you know, you know tiny homes, all these little tiny homes that people live in, 100, 200 square feet, whatever, uh, getting them into tiny homes uh, is the most cost-effective way of, of, of getting them off the street. Like, way better than all the other ways that are out there right now. Um, and so the folks here are asking, uh, most of the homelessness is found in the Twin Cities, in, in, in the inner city. Trouble is, there's not much real estate there. And all the zoning, you can't, it's zoned against that. I know that because my son wanted to live in a tiny home and I checked out all the old places and you can't build tiny homes around here. They're zoned against it. But they came up with a brilliant idea. What would happen? You know, churches have a lot of real estate and they, they're exempt and they can do their ministry however they want. Well, you have to still get permission, but there's a lot more flexibility there. What would happen if churches started allowing tiny home villages to be built on their space in some way? It, 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 it's, a beautiful, it's beautiful. And... So someone there knew about the stuff that we do for the homeless and, and the food pantry that we have and the training and all the after school programs and mentoring and all that stuff. And they said, I bet Willand Hills will be open to trying this. So they sent me a letter about three months ago and we've been talking to them about this. And so we want to raise $25,000. What they want to do is to build a model little tiny home village on our parking lot. Um, you guys, this is a... It, it, it's just beautiful. Because if this catches on, it could become a prototype that we then market to all these other churches. You know, not market, just like... And believe it or not, the church could actually start getting involved in helping the homeless. That would be an awful thought. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be a great thing? Uh, it's just... Okay, so we're, we still need to get... Uh, the, the, the mayor of St. Paul is like really jazzed about this. We still have to get approval from Maplewood. Um, if we don't, we're still going to do it, but we're just going to have to park it on a, a, a church. We've already got this backup church uh, that already has approval, but I want it here. So we're praying about that. I, I, I'm a little selfish on this one. And, and you, it, there's so many things I can't... It's just... It, it, yeah, where it could go is just incredible. With an unused space, uh, take the homeless people, uh, folks, and, and train them, help them start building homes, you know, and, and, and uh, bring some discipleship around them, give them a job, give them a reason to stay so praise God, uh, introduce them to Christ, and then start shipping these things all over the old man. Uh, okay, that's, just, that's the first one. Second one, we're going to support some urban churches. Urban churches are the, they live in neighborhoods that are, are they have the highest needs and have the, they have the least resources to meet those needs. We have partnerships with two churches, uh, Roots Church in, in uh, Roots Covenant Church in the Midway area. And uh, the Beacon of Hope Church in Minneapolis, which is where our, our uh, Soma Bible School or uh, Missional Community Discipleship School meets. Um, and so we want to raise $5,000 a piece to, to be in partnership with them. And then third is this, and this is great too. Um, we want to re rebuild homes in disaster areas. Uh, the, the, the Mennonite Disaster Relief Service is one of the best re relief services on the planet. Like they're often 
In fact, I'm told usually the first one's on the ground. Uh, they have all these volunteers that people sign up, and when disaster hits, they just send out a, a bulletin, and the folks show up there. Um, right now, they're rebuilding homes already in California, where the you know the fire has just leveled entire towns and stuff, and, and so they're over there rebuilding those homes, and they bring food and 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 clothing and all these other kind of needs, and we want to be partnering with them on that. It's an Anabaptist uh, uh, relief group, and it's just beautiful, and so we want to raise how much for that? Uh, Ten thousand dollars for that. Put all together, it's 50. And if we double that, we'll just double every figure I just gave you. Amen. So when you pick up one of these, I mean, is this, this jazz you? I, 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 this is what it looks like to show up. I think this is, I think this is great. It's just... Ah, this is great. We've got such people who have, have put this together. It's just, it's just been amazing. So, folks, we pick up that and just pray over it. Just pray over that and, and, and follow God's leading. And we just trust that God's going to be working in people's hearts to meet this need and uh, to bless other people. Celebrating the birth of Jesus in a Jesus kind of way. Would you stand? I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come up here, and if you are here and have any need that could use prayer, please come up here and pray with these folks. And uh, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus... Can I ask you to consider becoming one? If there's something in your heart that's pulling in that direction, come up here, talk to these folks, and they would love to explain to you what it is to uh, walk this out, to invite Jesus in on your life. As we leave here, can we do it as the people that are committed to regularly getting naked before God, huh? Uh, just be honest with God, honest with God, allowing God the space to love us out of wherever we are, out of our mess. He's a God who loves to dive into that. Let God be God, and you'll be you, and it's all going to be okay. Get out of here and love on people. Take care.